welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prefer not to disclose, back to the Undressing Underground Podcast. I always forget how much time I have, to co- I have till that happens and when I normally come in. I need some kind of cue, I guess, but kind of rather just keep fucking it up. Anyway, I hope everybody listening to this has gone back, if they haven't already heard it, and listened to the Sassy Black interview, because Sassy Black is fucking amazing, just like today's guest, chiptune artist, video game programmer, etc., Brad Smith. Uh, We will talk about those things, and we will hear some of those things. Before anything happens, you will hear Pink Floyd's Any Color You Like from his apparently incredibly popular Moon 8 album. After we talked, I was doing more Googling than I should have done beforehand and saw it covered in like Wired and NPR and all this shit. So I'm really late to the game, but hopefully you are too. And this will be new to you like it was to me about a month ago or so, whenever I got in contact with him initially. Uh, But after that, you will hear our talk. And during that... There will be three points where you will hear cues. Uh, He will mention the song, and I will try and put it into the background. I know in the past people have told me how horrible it was when I played music behind interviews. But I'm trying it again, and hopefully it'll work okay this time. It's only going to be three times. Once when he's talking about his first exposure to Pink Floyd, another time when he's talking about his favorite track off the Classic Chips album, his rework, his uh, interpretations of classical songs as chip tunes, and then once more when he talks about his own video game, I will play a track from that that I think fit. That I think fits. I'm not gonna re-record this. And at the end, you will hear a song from his Classic Chips. One that I'm not going to bother trying to pronounce because I can't fucking pronounce anything. Not even the simplest things. I can't pronounce them. And after that, I'll come back. I'll talk about the Poe thing and beg you to subscribe and all that shit and tell you who Kittens and Unicorns is talking to this week. And, uh, yeah. Here's any color you like.
Hello. Hey, you're not wearing your uh, lizard suit. Oh, uh, <laughs> not today. I was I was half expecting you to wear it just because I was looking through your YouTube videos earlier to hear some oh. more of your music, and I saw you were wearing it in like a few of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I could have. I, I didn't think of it. <laughs> I, I mean, this isn't a video podcast. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, but uh, thanks for talking to me. Actually, hang on. Let me. Um... Here. Okay. I've got a. I've got a microphone set up to the side just to have a better quality version from this side. Okay. Um, I don't know. I've done other interviews, like podcast things, through. Skype and I always know like the audio quality is usually pretty bad from like the the thing that went over Skype, right? Yeah, it's hit or miss. <laughs> but uh, I'll I'll send you like a cleaner recorded one. All right, cool, thanks. After. Um, so you do a bunch of eight uh, bit music. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what would you like me to tell you? Like, um, I guess I, guess, I got into it, or yeah, because because the first question would just be like, why, <laughs> why? I guess like, what draws somebody to ape to? It's called chip tunes, right? Yeah. Um, I get, yeah, that's the general name for it. Chip tunes. Um, I guess named after you know, like the actual chips that are the hardware we we're using but um like uh i always listened to music like this growing up like i played a lot of games um i had an atari st and that had its particular sound um i did play a lot of nintendo i didn't own one until fairly recently but um uh i liked the sound of video game music it was it was interesting and different than you know, stuff you'd hear on the radio or whatever. Um, and yeah, like, so I think I always kind of listen to video game music. Um, you know, like in the same rotation as CDs or records or whatever else I was listening to. Um, I tried to listen to lots of different kinds of things, but, um, yeah, like I always had, you know, like emulators playing Nintendo sound files and stuff like that. Really? Um, you know, as long as I had, like, music on my computer or whatever. Um, but, yeah, at some point uh, I found this program to make music for the Nintendo. It's called Tracker, mm -hmm. And um, it's this great little program that's like a combination of a Nintendo sound emulator that's trying to produce like the exact sounds that the Nintendo could do. Right. Uh, but it's also like a music composition tool. Like it's got a grid. It's called a, well, a tracker, um, sort of a music tool where you put notes on a grid and you type them in with your keyboard. Um, it's a very, well, it's a popular kind of style of composing tool. Um, it's one of many different ways to compose music on a computer, but so this program all of a sudden made it really easy to just work directly with, with that sound that, you know, I grew up with playing Nintendo games and stuff. 
And around that time, a friend of mine um, was going to have a CD mix party where, like, you know, put a mix of 10 tracks or whatever on a CD and, and burn 10 copies of it and we'll all trade at the party. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why. I think I heard... I think I was playing with it, and I, I was thinking of um, uh, the track On the Run um, from Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Okay. And I think it came to mind because uh, the first time I heard that when I was a kid, like my parents had had it, um, I think they put it on at a party or something, like a dinner party they had, and I was walking around, and all these adults around, and all of a sudden <laughs> I hear like these these synthesizer noises coming from the stereo. And I was like, what is this? And I was kind of disappointed that like none of the rest of the album sounded like that, (laughs) but like it sounded like video game music kind of. Hmm. Um, So that was sort of my first ever experience of Pink Floyd hearing on the run and and thinking it was like, it was like the music I heard in my games. (laughs) Um, so I remembered that and it's an album like Dark Side of the Moon I've, I've listened to like over and over over the years like I've I don't know, one, of, one of my favorite albums yeah and so yeah so I guess like I was starting to type in notes on the Nintendo this program called Family Tracker and it uh, I don't know I guess I, I remembered that moment and thought, what if I try to do On the Run in Family Tracker? And I did. And I liked it. I liked <laughs> it. Uh, it sounded kind of close to the original, not exactly. But then I thought, well, what if I just do the whole album? <laughs> and so I, I made about half of it in like a month. It took a and month. And it wasn't, it wasn't ready for that party. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so then I put it on the shelf. I promised everyone I'd, I'd, I'd finish it and mail them a CD, and then I put it on the shelf, and then soon after that, like, I got a job, and I, I moved to, well, I moved from Canada to the U.S., uh, and I, I don't know, I couldn't get back to it for a while. I just lost interest in it for a long time, and then, like, three years later, I was just, like, looking through stuff on my hardware I'm like, I still have this I, I really like the sound of the first half of Dark Side of the Moon that I made and nobody's heard it because why would I share it with anybody if I hadn't finished it so at that point I went back to it and I, I forced myself to continue and and get it done um, so that was that was me finishing Dark Side of the Moon on the Nintendo um, well, the project's called Moon 8. Right. I don't know, 8 for 8-bit, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I did that. And after that came out, um, I started, like, seeing if anyone was talking about it online or whatever, and I'd, I'd find message boards, and I eventually sort of found a community of people who make chiptunes and got kind of involved with that. Like, it became interesting uh, like I enjoyed the interactions I was having with people and the other stuff people were doing within chiptunes. So I got quite interested in that. Uh, real then, quick, what was the community called? Uh, well, there's a couple of places. 
Um, there was a place called 8-Bit Collective where people would post a lot of chiptunes. Uh, Family Tracker itself has like a message board where people talk. Um, and there's also uh, an NES development community. They're not really about music, but they are. They do talk about like the NES and how to program for it and stuff like that. What do they do? Just create games? Uh, yeah, or just talk about like how the Nintendo works or try to make better emulators or like all sorts of goals to do with that, like just learning about the Nintendo. Hmm. Um, I'm surprised there's, they haven't like already made a perfect sort of emulator at this point. Oh, well. Uh, They've been around for like 15 years, haven't they? I would say Nintendo emulators are better than any other system. Like it's had more attention paid to it mm-hmm. than any other old system. But uh, emulation is never perfect. Like you, like when you get down to it, it's it's this um, analog circuitry with you know hundreds of thousands of components in it. Um, you can't really account for that all in a computer program, or you can you can maybe try. Actually, there are um, like there's actually really weird things that are still going on in the reverse engineering the Nintendo um, effort. Uh, like a couple of years ago, maybe like two years ago, somebody you know um, decapped or decapsulated the Nintendo CPU. Mm-hmm like took high resolution um high resolution photographs of you know the circuitry inside and then they feed that into a, like some sort of logic simulator that's based on that image um so it's simulating all the circuitry inside hmm. and even that it, it's not like 100 percent correct but it's it's getting there but the thing about something like that is simulating that uh like to process one frame takes like half an hour or something like that. Like it's, it's ridiculously slow. Like this is why you can't, um, you, you can't emulate at that level of detail, at least not with today's computing power. So but when I, you emulate, you, you're just trying to make something work. Like you, right. you add features that are important from the hardware until, until it runs everything that you try to run on it. Yeah. Um, and that was actually how I got involved in the community, like talking to all these people who were making chiptunes and then they'd try something weird that there's like nothing's ever actually tried to do that combination of things on the Nintendo before. And they ask and they ask on the message board, like, well, this is what it sounds like in Tracker, but does it work if you try it on a Nintendo? And nobody knew the answer. Um so at that point, I bought a Nintendo and learned to program for it just so I could like run programs on it and do tests and find out what's going on there. Did you already know how to program? Oh, yeah. Like um, I started programming when I was, oh, I don't know, I was like six years old or something. I, oh found, a, I found a book at the library um, at school, and it was like basic programming for for kids like it had the book had pictures of monsters and <laughs> things in it. And yeah, like I type in programs, see how they work. Uh, I typed in a lot of programs from magazines. They used to do that. Um, hmm. They put code listings 
like maybe there'd be 10 pages of code in the back of the magazine and you'd spend a couple hours typing it in and then you'd run it and see if it works. And, um, but I did that. Like I would, uh, that's basically how I learned to program by, um, by typing in other programs, playing with them. I wanted to make games cause I was really, I loved playing games and that's how, that's why I learned to program. And eventually I found that I enjoyed that kind of problem solving. Um, so that became like my career. Like I've been a professional uh, games programmer for a long time. Oh, cool. Um, is like anything notable? Uh, well, like half the things I've worked on were canceled. That's, <laughs> I think that's about normal okay. for software industry in general. Right. Um, like a lot of stuff is tried. Not everything gets to market. Um, uh, there's a game called Alpha Protocol okay. that I did some work on, uh, mostly to do with sound. Um, there was before that I was working on at the same company. It's called Obsidian Entertainment. They mostly make role-playing games. Um, they were making an RPG based on the Alien franchise. Okay. I think I remember and, that. I don't really play video games, but I remember because the Gordon Weaver Weaver came back for that, right? Uh, or did I she? don't think she would have been involved in our project, but like there have been many Alien games right. over the years, but like this game didn't come out. But this was like my oh, okay. first, um, my first big uh, professional game development experience. So like we worked on this Alien game for two years. And then it got canceled oh. <laughs> for various reasons. Like some were probably our fault. Some were kind of external to like, there's always lots of things going on that have nothing to do with what you're actually doing. But um, yeah, so I worked there for a while. I worked at a startup company. Um, we put out a, a thing called Yars Revenge which was like sort of a sequel to an Atari 2600 game from like 1982. What year was this? <laughs> um, well, this game we made came out, I guess like two years, two, three years ago, two or three years ago. But it was, um, it was for like Xbox 360. And wasn't the style of, like Atari though? No, <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> even that. Uh, like the original Yara's Revenge, you were this fly and you like shoot pieces of a base until you break away the wall. Okay. And then you have to like summon a missile strike to attack the base. And it's all like very primitive graphics, but uh, it was probably the, the most fun Atari 2600 game. Hmm. Um, and the weird thing is that game was made by the same person who made ET as notorious <laughs> that as that is for being like the worst game or whatever. Yeah. I don't think it's actually the worst 2600 game, but um, he also made the best Atari 2600 <laughs> game, in my opinion. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it goes to show what, you know, putting, making someone, forcing them to make a game in a month does to the quality of a game. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but our game was like loosely based on that. It was like a, uh, on rails shooter and you were like this fly woman shooting crabs with a laser. I don't know. It was kind of fun, but, yeah. uh. And we worked on a few other things that that um, 
got canceled or whatever, didn't take off. But um, yeah, so I don't have a lot of whole lot of published game credits, but I've, <laughs> I've been in the games industry for almost ten years. Oh, nice. I guess. Well, getting paid at least for doing what you enjoy. So yeah, <laughs> well, usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so then you you actually figured out how to program on the Nintendo system. Yeah. Well, it's not that different from. Well, in some ways, it's not that different from other systems. Like um, on the Nintendo, you're usually using assembly language, um, just because you need pretty direct uh, control of the hardware. I don't know if you know the difference between like assembly language and like a higher level language. Not really. Um, <laughs> most programs today are written in higher level languages, where um, is that like JavaScript and stuff. Yeah, JavaScript or C or I don't know. There's various there's various levels, but right. um, those are basically like you're typing in logical statements. Like um, I don't know. I don't know how to say it in a way that doesn't <laughs> just sound like uh, gobbledygook. But the difference between that and assembly language programming is assembly language is you're talking to this CPU like in directly the language it understands pretty much like it's it's tiny operations like add this number to this number or fetch this byte from this place in RAM compare this number to this number in RAM like very the the nuts and bolts of how a program actually works yeah I usually guess usually you work in a language that abstracts all that away like you write some logical statement yeah and a program turns that into machine code assembly code for you right like if x happens then y happens sort of thing yeah um but in assembly language you're you're just telling the computer exactly what to do step by step hmm. uh and it's a bit tedious but you <laughs> you kind of need to do that for a system that's as small and limited as the nintendo like yeah. there's not a lot of processing power so you can't really let um let a compiler try to figure out how to do things for you because there's there's a loss of efficiency there unfortunately so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you need sometimes you need that power sometimes you don't you actually can write higher level language for nintendo and some people are trying um very recently some guy is trying to write a python to nintendo compiler with um some success so far like it's made a demo where you can move a sprite around the screen and stuff but uh what's the what's the goal with doing all this just to know they can do it or does it help like with um, making other things more efficient i don't know maybe people <laughs> will will use it to make fun programs on the nintendo like but what's the appeal of the nintendo specifically just the nostalgia value or the limitations uh, for me, it's the the limitations of it are a big thing. Like the Nintendo versus other systems. Um, if you look at like Atari Twenty Six Hundred, it's really limited. Like the kind of game you can produce with it uh, can only go so far. Are and then on the like other side, Pong, sort of, or like Space Invaders. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit higher level than Pong. Like maybe the more complex games for. 2600 like pitfall or something like that where you can have a bit of an adventure but 
it's still very small. But as soon as you get to Nintendo, um, it's it's like it's just powerful enough to be really versatile. Like you have games like Super Mario Three, where you have this rather large world to explore, and like lots of complicated interactions happen. You can't have a whole lot going on at once, but it is um, it it doesn't feel so limited in scope as as something on like the Atari Twenty Six Hundred would. Wouldn't Super Mario Three be on the Super Nintendo, which was sixteen bit? Oh no, uh, Super Mario Three was still Nintendo. The oh, first really? um, Super Mario World was the first. Uh, oh okay, Super Nintendo one, but. Um, yeah, once you get to Super Nintendo, I feel like a lot of that limitation is off. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of do not everything you want, but a lot of things that you'd want. And then, you know, as time goes on, you have more processing power, more graphical power, and you can do tons of things. Um, so what I find is that the Nintendo, it's all the limitations sort of keep the game in a scope that I think I could do as one person. Like this is why I'm, I'm making okay. a game for the Nintendo because I want to, I wanted something I could do just myself. Um, and I figured the, the size and scope of a Nintendo game is something I could manage on my own. Uh, and the other thing is just that because it's just barely good enough to do what I want it to do, uh, it does put its mark on how things come out. Like I'm limited to, uh, you know, a certain number of colors on screen at once and stuff like that where you wouldn't see it to play the game, but having to make the game, like I'm constantly making decisions based on, uh, I can't have these three different things on the screen at once, but I can have this combination. And I, I like having to deal with that. I like... I like the idea that this game wouldn't be the way it is unless I was doing it on the Nintendo. Yeah. Well, one thing I saw you mention somewhere, or somebody mentioned at least, was uh, where it is noticeable is in the music. Because I remember reading, mm. like I said, I forget if it was you or somebody else, but saying about a Dark Side of the Moon, like having to take out the drums at certain points. Because I think the you can only have like three channels of music going at once. Is that what it was? Uh, well, there's three, um, it has three melodic channels Mm -hmm. and it has like a noise channel that you can sort of use for drums. And it also has this, um, sample playback, like it'll play a recorded sound, but it's really crummy quality. Hmm. And it also, uh, recorded sound takes a lot of space up on the cartridge. So a lot of games didn't use that much. Um, so basically you have four, maybe five channels and only three of them can kind of produce melodic things. So you have a chord, you know, like a standard triad has three notes in it. Mm-hmm. If you want to have like a chord for harmony plus, you know, a melody going on at the same time, um, you're out of notes already. Like, <laughs> So you have to kind of imply harmony by, um, by working with, less channels kind of walking back and forth between notes like uh like a lot of the dark side of the moon thing um i've sort of cut it down to 
you know, like I have a bass line that's kind of holding down the harmony by going across the notes, and then I'll have a, a lead guitar channel, and then I'll, I'll waste a whole other channel just to do like an echo of the guitar to make it sound, um, you know, just that that reverb yeah. sound that was part of um, Dark Side of the Moon. But uh, other times you can do, you can play like notes really fast. They call it an arpeggio. Or, well, an arpeggio just means to um, to play a chord um, quickly. But like in chiptune, when someone says arpeggio, or usually they just say arp, <laughs> words get shortened when people use them a lot. But yeah, um, in chiptune, it specifically means really fast. Like if you play notes really fast, it basically sounds like a solid chord, but with a particular sound. Um, and people didn't use that in Nintendo games that much. There are some composers that did it a lot, but uh, if you listen to like Commodore 64 music or Atari ST music, a lot of stuff that came out of Europe, uh, chiptunes and games in the 80s, early 90s, you'll hear this uh, particular sound where it's just like they make the chords by just playing lots of notes really, really fast. Hmm. Uh, and that's the substitute for not having enough channels to play all those notes. You just you just play them all quickly back and forth, and it kind of simulates the idea. Um. So, how did you end up? Did you always plan to? Uh, well, you didn't always plan to, but like, why did you end up uh, deciding to put Dark Side of the Moon onto an actual Nintendo cartridge? Oh. Um. Yeah, so that happened like, uh, I forget if it took me like a year or two years after I made the actual music. Like I made all that music in that Family Tracker program mm -hmm. and it worked and I was certain like it could play on a Nintendo, but I'd never actually put it on a Nintendo. Yeah. Um, so that was part of what I wanted to do. I just wanted to, it felt like finishing it off to actually... <laughs> Uh, put it on the Nintendo and run it on a cartridge. Um, so that was sort of a personal satisfaction thing, but also, uh, like, I took on a project like that just because I wanted to learn more about the Nintendo. I found it fun to program for, and I thought it would be an appropriate way to to learn that skill. To kind of, I think that was my first uh, real released. Nintendo, pro like I'd made a few smaller programs to test things or um, other things like that, but that was my first like ROM release, I guess. Is that what it's called? Is even if it's a cartridge, it's called a ROM? Uh, well, the ROM, um, yeah, in emulation, usually like if you get a, a file to put in an emulator, um, it's called a ROM because right. it's read-only memory from the game. Um, that's basically where all the data from the game is. Like, it's like as if a file on your hard drive um, that represents, you know, a Windows program. Same kind of thing for a Nintendo program. Like, it's just a block of data. Um, and on a cartridge, it happens to be on a chip instead of, you know, magnetic data on your hard drive or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that chip is is read only. It's a it's a ROM. Oh, okay. So you tend to call um, those 
files that you use in an emulator or ROM because yeah. it's it would go in a ROM chip if it were on the Nintendo. Like it's 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 a dump of a ROM from a Nintendo game. How how do you get it onto the chip? Is there like hardware you can buy? Uh yeah. Well, uh, what Nintendo had to do like to manufacture cartridges is they would, you know, like they would when you're making a thousand of them, mm-hmm. they actually have a, like a machine that manufactures them but you can get things called erasable roms right or what is it called well eprom erasable programmable rom or something like that mm-hmm. i'm not exactly sure what eprom stands for <laughs> but it's basically um a version of a rom chip where you can shine uv light in the top there's a little hole in the top of the chip mm-hmm. with a little glass window or whatever and you can put it in a uv light uh, you can buy a little box that just shines a UV light on it or something. Um, and that erases it. And then you put it in a programmer. And the programmer can set all the bits in this ROM. And then you could stick that ROM in a cartridge and solder it up. And it'll run. Like, that's um, that's how people tend to do it now. Because nobody's, uh, nobody's really making thousands of a Nintendo cartridge. So they can't. Like, it's just not cost-effective. You have to have a huge order to make that worth it because they have to make all sorts of things to manufacture something like that. But, you know, it's sort of like a cassette tape versus a CD. Like, you can still... You can erase a cassette tape and record something else on it. Um, Maybe it's a bad analogy because of the quality difference, but, (laughs) you know, you can rewrite one, basically. So a lot of... uh, so I guess technically, like, if you bought, you know, a homebrew game on a Nintendo cartridge, you could probably take it apart, take out that ROM chip, erase it, put something else on it if you wanted to. Because um, they are, most of them, most people use erasable ones, but it would be, it'd be a bit inconvenient. Right. But it's probably doable for a lot of those. And then, uh, I guess, how did you end up getting started on your uh, classic chiptunes ones of all the classical music oh yeah um <laughs> did you forget about that <laughs> well it's been it's been a few years since oh, okay. I, I, made that. I don't know well <laughs> i've been doing this for a little while yeah uh yeah classic chips was um actually it was final fantasy for nintendo the battle theme always reminded me of um Pasapiate by uh, Claude Debussy. Are you big into so, classical music? Oh yeah. Um, maybe we should say like my my. Um, like I actually went to university for music. Oh. And, well, I did music and computer science sort of at the same time. But like my my primary degree was a bachelor of music, and then I stayed there like an extra year and finished off. Um, credits to complete a computer science degree mm-hmm. so i have i have two degrees um but classical music was a big part of that education but i always i mean i listened to classical music before then but um i think that it tends to be a strong component of you know uh like university music music education mm-hmm. uh they tend to be very classical focused 
but um, I don't know. I like. I think I like music from all eras. Like I, <laughs> I have an interest in early music as well as modern music and different kinds of things. But um, yeah, so. I don't know. I think I was playing Final Fantasy and, and I heard that tune again, or maybe I was just listening to the the music from Final Fantasy, but I thought maybe I'll make a chip tune of of that Debussy piece. And I did. And I liked it. And I thought I can't think of I could think of a lot of games um that use classical music, especially like in the eighties. Um you know, classical music's public domain. Right. There's no copyright problems and if you're like a programmer who's not really a composer but you have to do music like that was a situation a lot of people were in and they would just take a piece of classical music type in the notes and you know they wouldn't have to compose that way um and you have a lot of games that have little fragments of classical music at least like um Dexter. uh was this game well it was on a bunch of different systems but you were sort of like this robot stuff but it has um beethoven's moonlight sonata i think plays in the game over screen or, hmm. um stuff like that so i was thinking has anyone made an album of you know classical music on the nes i couldn't think of any uh and i have some albums like um wendy carlos made this uh switched on bach in the maybe it was late 60s, early 70s. Oh, the one on synthesizer? Yeah, Bach on, on the Moog synthesizer. Yeah. And uh, that was something I'd heard as a kid, and I thought it was, I thought it was great. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. I was just tr- I, The episode I uploaded uh, yesterday, I was trying to reference that, and I couldn't remember the name of the person. <laughs> oh, yeah, Wendy Carlos uh, switched on Bach. And there's also, there's other people who did it, um, did that kind of thing too. Uh, Isao Tomita, um, Japanese composer, he made several uh, kind of classical synthesizer albums, hmm. uh, mostly in the 70s. Might still be making them, I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, so I'd heard some stuff like that and I thought, I'll, I'll make an album like that. Um, so that one Debussy piece is from a set of four called The Sweet Bergamask. Um, and it has a, there's the famous, I think his most famous piece is called Claire de Lune is this piano piece. Um, but that's in that set. So I thought that'd be a good set. And then I, from there, I picked a couple of different things that were kind of my favorites that I thought might translate well. Um, the, the opening piece is this, um, Sonata number five by Alexander Scriabin. Um, he he wrote he wrote from for the piano like it was an orchestra like his his technique was really high level like there are people who can play Scriabin but I'm I'm not at that level so I but I love I love that sonata or I love all of the sonatas they're like they are like his symphonies he wrote ten of them um but yeah, like my piano skill isn't really up to it. So I've been I've been toying at this piece for years at the piano and like sort of learning parts of it, playing it slowly, and I listen to recordings of it or whatever. But I thought this is a good excuse to 
you know, make a version of it that's mine, even though I'm not playing it. At least it feels <laughs> like I'm doing something with it finally. Yeah. Um, so was it difficult to translate these to uh, chiptune? Um. Well, like there's some of the problems that I discussed before, like. You know, you only have three melodic channels on the on the NES. Some of those tracks on classic chips, I actually used um, expansion audio, <laughs> which was a thing. You didn't have it on the NES, like in North America, but yeah. the, the original Famicom in Japan, it had um, extra pins on the cartridge that sent the audio through the cartridge. Hmm. And most cartridges just had, it was just connected by a wire. So the audio went in and went back out. It's just the regular hardware. But occasionally they made games where they put another synthesizer chip of some sort inside the cartridge and it would add sound. Um, I think one of the most famous ones is Castlevania 3. The Japanese version has like three extra channels of sound and it's like this amazing heavy orchestration compared to, you know, the version we got in North America. Um but that sort of thing, it made the cartridge more expensive, so they had to, I don't know if they were, they had, like, cost versus, you know, will I sell the game kind of right. uh, discussions at companies. But not a lot of games used it in Japan, but some of them did. And you have sort of interesting extra things. So it's still chiptune, like, it's still the same kind of sound coming out of it. Yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, like, so those expansions are all actually supported by the Family Tracker program that um, I like to use to compose Nintendo music. So I thought, so I thought it would be a good fit for some of them. Um, some of them I kept them to just Nintendo, like the the Debussy ones, um, and uh, there's some Brahms on there as well, and then. There's some other ones that have sort of bigger orchestrations that use, you know, these expansion chips just to add a few more channels just to fill up the harmony. Uh, Scriabin used kind of non-traditional harmony. So I, you know, I felt like I needed at least five notes in a lot of times uh, just to get the his sound. Is there, is this generally accepted by the chiptune community or is this seen as like sort of cheating? to use more than three channels for the melodics? Um, I think there's sort of a split on that. Really? <laughs> uh, there's, like, I mostly prefer not to use the expansions. Mm -hmm. um, but they are fun to play with, and they're not, you know, they're not outside the realm of chiptune sound. Um, right. My feeling is just if someone makes good music with it, then it's good. I'm, I'm happy to listen to whatever. Um, I think, like, I think I'm more interested in stuff that that probably works in more limited means and somehow accomplishes something impressive with it. But um, I still like good music if it's made with those extra channels. So what if it was something with, like, two or three expansion packs you used? Uh, some people do that, actually. Really? There's um, there's a Japanese artist uh, who calls himself Robo Kabuto, and uh, he's made a lot of Nintendo sound files that have 
maybe three expansions or four expansions at once. And they are they are big orchestrations and they're they're very well done. Um they're pretty interesting. And there's some there's actually some videos on I don't know if they're on YouTube or if they're on uh Nico Nico Doga. I don't know if you've heard of that. Is that like a Japanese YouTube? Yeah, basically. Huh. Um but uh, he's got like a device that he plugs into the Famicom. So it's a cartridge and then it has another thing that plugs in and then he can plug in like three different cartridges to use their expansion chips Yeah. Um, all at once. And it's really kind of interesting to see. Huh. I'll have to check that out. That does sound really interesting. And is it like original compositions he's doing? Uh, he does a lot of covers. I think he's done some original compositions as well. Um, when I was trying to listen to your music earlier, I was originally listening on YouTube, but I hate doing it on my phone because I have to leave the video open. So I, I found you on the uh, iTunes music store. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the, through the streaming free trial and I saw you have an original album too. That isn't exactly chiptune, but it sounds like it's heavily influenced by chiptune. Oh, uh, yeah, I have, I think it's called depths. Yeah. The album you're talking about. That was something I wrote a long time ago. Uh, I think 1999 or 2000. Um, uh, it was released in 2010, it looked like. At least on oh, iTunes. Oh, well, I put it on iTunes yeah. in 2010. but <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, I, I made that recording. Like That was the first album I ever made where I felt like this is an album. Was that like professionally done? Like in a um, studio? No, I did it in my basement oh, really? on my computer. In nineteen ninety nine? Yeah. That's I don't know. I was in high school at the time, but uh I'm trying to think back, like computers, like I think my like I had like the purple iMac probably in nineteen ninety nine and it had like six gigabytes of internal space. Like how were you recording music to a computer back then? Uh it was still doable then. Yeah. Um limitations again. <laughs> I had some, I didn't have the greatest equipment, but you could do a lot with digital editing. Yeah. Um, like a lot of things I'd record on a microphone and it was just one of those like tiny little microphones on a stand oh, really? cheap kind of thing. But you can take the sound from that and then you can use noise reduction on it and try and mix it with other sounds so that like the, the poor sound quality of the microphone isn't really so much of a disadvantage when it's combined with things. I noticed a lot if, of reverb, I think, and yeah. echo. <laughs> if you use synthesizers, like there's no there's no, no microphone involved, so you can actually get a pretty clean sound right. uh, with very modest equipment. Um, but I have noticed, like, since then... Just the baseline audio equipment in computers is way better. Oh, yeah. Like what you can get now, um, like an onboard. I guess, I guess what's changed is people listen to music on the computer now. Right. So the average consumer actually needs high quality output. <laughs> Whereas, you know, around like 2000, not many people were listening to MP3s on their computer. Like it was still kind of a a niche thing. So I guess I had to go out of my way to get like a really good sound blaster. Um, but even then I think I did most of that album before I even had slightly better hardware. Uh, 
but I was dealing with like that constant noise floor and, and doing digital editing to try and remove it and, and compensate for that. But, and you did have, sorry, it was, it was still doable then though. Like it's a lot easier now. I think it's a lot. Good equipment is a lot cheaper than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, just garage band is free. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but so you actually did have a synth a synthesizer. I can never say that word, but a synth then too that you're plugging. Uh, in? Oh well, um, I had I had a keyboard um, that was kind of a um, it wasn't an expensive keyboard, but it had a set of general MIDI sounds. So it had like you know that set of a hundred different standard types of sounds. Yeah. So it had like this kind of cheesy sounding saxophone and an okay kind of sampled piano and a bunch of other sounds in there. But I'd start with those often and I'd, I'd distort them or do other things to them to try and make them sound more like what I wanted. Uh, you know, I'd record my guitar or I'd record whatever I had. Uh, I think there's a bit of trombone on that album too. Um, like an actual trombone? Yeah. So I, I, how trained in music are you? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I had, I took piano lessons when I was a kid. Um, I kind of hated practicing, <laughs> but you know, I stuck with it for a while and then I had, and I played trombone, uh, in the bands at school, jazz bands or whatever concert band. Um, so I always had like the music going on, but I was more interested in like writing music than I was in playing the piano. Eventually I got more interested in playing the piano. Like when I went to university, like I started playing more and I got, uh, I got to a point where I felt like I'm a competent pianist. I'm not a, like, I'm not a virtuoso pianist, but I can, I can play. Yeah. Um, but I was also always playing trombone. I was in choirs. Um, so, I mean, like I did, I have a degree in music. Right. Um, and I tried to, I was in basically as many credits as I could get in like performing in bands or school credits or, and trying to cram in credits from a computer science education at the same time. Um, it was pretty full, but yeah, I did get a lot of playing experience. <laughs> Maybe not so much in depth, like a virtuoso performer, but I yeah. might have a fair bit of breadth. Like I also had a guitar and bass guitar and a wow. lot of stuff. Do you still make music outside of chip tunes? Uh, yeah, to some extent. Like, um, but I haven't been writing. I go through periods where I write a bit. I wrote a lot of music for um, like acoustic instruments when I was in school. Hmm. And then after that, there was sort of a couple years break when I had my first job. Um, and then, yeah, after that, I sort of did chip tunes a lot, but I still, uh, sometimes I write for guitar or piano or um, other things like that. When you say write for, do you mean like you're writing sheet music or you're um, like working yeah. it out on guitar? Well, I do. I, I usually write things down. Huh. But I mean, like I'll I'll play the piano or play the guitar and write notes down and think about. Sometimes, if, even if I'm writing for guitar, I might 
do work on that at the piano or I might just be sitting somewhere and thinking about the music in my head and trying to remember it for later. Like, uh, a lot of times I write down notes like on my computer, just as a text file, like E F G <laughs> some, some things to remember rhythm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like I can write, I can think of notes somewhere else and then play them later. Like they are kind of, I don't have to be at the instrument to compose, though it often helps. Right. Um, have you have? Do you ever uh, blend chip tunes with acoustic instruments or anything? Um, I'm trying to think if I've done that. Uh, there are some people who do that, um, like Anna Gucci. I think it's one of the, the more well-known bands that has like a big chip tune part of their sound, but they also play like guitars and all that stuff. Is that uh, is that person? Is the person in that, is that what would you call like hard chipping, I guess? Like, are they playing like a Game Boy or something? Uh, I don't know what they're doing uh, in terms of live. Like some people have just recorded sound. Some people do have like Game Boys on stage with them that they plug into the PA or. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people do different things. Um, I don't know what Anamanaguchi does. I've never seen them live or anything, but um yeah, so there is there are some people doing it. Uh, I've been thinking of maybe doing things that are like chiptune and other things, but I haven't really done much of that. Um. All right. Well, I think I'm pretty much out of questions. Unless you have anything you want to add. Um. I don't know. I'm trying to think of. Uh, <laughs> It's the topic of, of computers and music. It is um, interesting how much you've blended your interests. Hmm? It is interesting how much you've been able to blend your interests of computer science and music. Like that you've this yeah. over time you've been able to combine them in really interesting ways, it sounds like. Um I guess so. I haven't really been able to um or maybe I have at this point. It depends what you consider professional, but I always like when I was working in the games industry professionally, um, like I wasn't working on musical stuff in general. I did some sound programming, but not a whole lot of it. Like most of my work was in computer graphics. Um, was the sound, is, sorry. Hmm? I was going to say, was the sound like, do you mean like sound effects and stuff like folly sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, a lot of times you're like the, the problems of sound for most computer games are, fairly generic so you're not you're not trying to do something musical like you just have a music track and you play it mm -hmm. um so i mean like i always wanted to compose video game music when i was a kid like i hear great super nintendo soundtracks and, and i wanted to make that stuff but you know i wasn't i wasn't a super nintendo developer uh but now I could be if I wanted to. I don't think I will ever tackle the Super Nintendo, but um, I have at this point composed a game soundtrack for for the Nintendo, and uh, that's been a really neat experience. I don't. I guess I haven't talked much about the the game I'm making, but um, oh yeah, what is what is the game you're making? Uh, I'm making this game called Lizard, which is a platform game. 
Uh, is that, sort of an open. Is that why you wear the suit and everything a lot? Is it all like tied together? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's basically the the how the character in the game is. Like you're you're a human and you're wearing a lizard. Okay. Like, like one of those dinosaur suits. And um, so the idea is you'll uh, explore the world, and sometimes you find other lizards. You'll climb out. You'll get in that one, and that one will have a different power. Maybe it can bounce, or maybe it can turn to stone, or or um, maybe it has a surfboard and it can go ride it on the river or something like that. But um, that's sort of how that game is like a, an exploration game. So I've been I've been working on it for uh, basically two years now. I hope it's almost done. <laughs> is there like a goal in it? Is there like an endpoint, or is it just like? Uh yeah. There's. Well, basically, for each lizard you find, there's sort of a corresponding uh, boss to beat. Okay. So there's kind of um, six boss challenges, which are sort of the end of a level, but it's also it's self-directed. It's You can go whichever way you want, more like something like Metroid. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't really have levels. It just has a big world to explore, but there are... It does have a structure like that to it, with a few major goals. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Um, but being able to do like that's the first time I've actually got to do the soundtrack for a video game, even though it's not out yet. But it it will be out soon. I mean, uh, you, something I was wanted to do. Have you offered to do it for other like indie games or anything? Um. No, I've. Uh, Actually, you know, like now that I've been kind of involved with the chiptune community, there are I have done a few other like little projects with people, like part of a community thing, like doing one track for a compilation album or something like that. Hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know if I would do music for someone else's. Like I, I would do some music for someone else's games if if the right uh, offer came along, I guess. Um, but I, I haven't been seeking out to try and do that. Like that's, I don't know. I have I have a bunch of my own goals, like this game that I'm trying to finish. So, right. like that's one of the reasons why I haven't. If I wasn't making this game, I'd probably be writing more music. But I've got other things to do: programming and building levels and all that stuff. Yeah. Um. I guess one thing I actually forgot to ask was uh. With, on the YouTube videos for like the classic chiptunes and classical chiptunes and the uh, Eight Moon, is you have these videos along with the music of like people performing the songs. Mm. Did you actually? And they're like little eight-bit characters. Did you actually yep. compose that like in an emulator, or is it just? Um, like... I wrote a program that basically took, um, like all the notes from the that I made in Family Tracker or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I turned all those notes into cues for the animation. So it's a program that generated the video, and I drew the sprites to be animated by the notes, basically. Um, so I've tried to do videos like that for a lot of pieces, of, like pieces of music that I feel are significant, I try and make an animation for. Yeah, I saw you had a... Actually, I don't remember if Freebird had a video or not. If it just had like a uh, still image. No, I well, I did that one. That was one of my earlier 
covers. Oh, really? I thought it was just sort like of... uploaded recently. Uh, oh, I think I re-uploaded it. Okay. Um, I don't know. People were talking about the the uh, what's that flag? The Confederate flag yeah. imagery. Um, when I originally uploaded it, it had the Confederate flag because that was a thing that Freebird was using. I didn't realize that they'd actually, after I did that cover, like a couple of years later, they themselves abandoned the Confederate flag imagery. So yeah, um, I don't know. I felt like I should re-upload it, so I re-uploaded it with just an American flag. But um, okay. But like, so the the eight moon cartridge, the was that what was that was called the eight? Is it called eight? Moon Eight. Moon Eight, sorry. Um, the Moon Eight cartridge, does it have the characters playing along with it if you played in a Nintendo? Oh, uh, no. I could show you a video of what it looks like, but um, it's more, it just gives a little display. There's like the five channels yeah, and a little sort of volume meter for each channel. Okay. And sometimes some other things like um, the the base channel is always just a triangle and there's no volume control, so it's it's always just sort of on or off. But the the square channels they have volume. They also have a shape that sort of changes the um, the tone, the timbre. Huh. So it might be like more nasal or it might be more kind of clarinet like, depending on like the width of the square wave that it makes. So they could actually interact with the music then. Uh, well, it's not interactive, but you can see what's Oh, sort of visually okay. represented what's going on a little bit. Um, yeah, so there's not much animation going on on that cartridge. But I, I, it's, you know, I could make an animated music demo for the Nintendo. Um, I've made some other cartridges where, like, there's limited amounts of animation, but I haven't really done anything that's sort of music and sound in that... Um, more thorough way there are um i don't know if you've heard of of the demo scene or they call it demo scene or just scene no uh but it's something that's been going on with computers for a long time uh it wasn't so much a nintendo thing but like on the commodore 64 or on the atari st um especially in europe there are lots of groups of people where they make things that they call them demos where it is um, a combination of graphics and music uh, and usually like trying to make impressive programming techniques like make your computer do something that you wouldn't have ever expected to see on your computer. Um, and that's sort of a its own community of people that has that that continues to the present day like um, the demo scene, which is, they make some pretty interesting things because, like, unlike trying to make like a game for Nintendo, mm -hmm. um, when you're making a demo, you're usually focused on like some very specific effects. So you can spend the you can spend all of your resources, all of your processing power, on like I don't know, trying to make a 3D rubber cube or something that you would never see on a Nintendo, but it would be technically possible if you could spend this much effort on it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and they often have kind of interactive music and sound, and they might be interesting, interesting to check out if you, if you want to see some stuff like that. 
yeah just the word demo scene is one word okay you'll find lots of stuff but uh maybe i'll reach out to somebody from that to talk to that sounds (laughs) interesting um yeah i guess it does it for my questions um okay thank you for talking to me that was fun sure i enjoyed it (laughs) oh good (laughs) um and yeah i'll let you know when this goes up obviously and uh, okay yeah thank you all right have a good night you too And now Brad Smith with Johann Sebastian Bach's Prelude 16, G minor, WTCI. Hey, my voice feels oddly appropriate today. Smith, right? That was Brad Smith. I need to double check that now. Yeah, Brad Smith. Uh, you can 
hear and see and play more of Brad Smith's stuff through Brad Smith's website, which is rainwarrior.ca. That's R-A-I-N-W-A-R-R-I-O-R dot C-A, thecanadian.com. Hey, Forrest, stop doing that. Hey. Fucking cat. Every time. Uh, where was I? Yes, Brad Smith's website, which is appropriately in HTML 1.0. It has a nice little purple graph with all of his links. Let's see. Uh, come back on Thursday. No, Friday. We're not WTF. I didn't remember that. Come back on Friday for... Kittens Unicorns chat with Arctic 16. Another, I'm gonna say legendary Gawker commenter, even though I don't know if there are any legendary Gawker commenters outside of Mari Thompson, I guess. But uh, yeah, let's go with legendary. And come back next Tuesday for what will presumably be a simulcast of Zach and me with me. Their podcast is called Zach and Me. How cute. We uh, interviewed each other, and then Zach number one, I'll call him. They're both named Zach, but uh, Zach number one edited it in their trademark style with a bunch of my music and a bunch of original music they did, I guess, to try and match my music, which... All I remember of just involved a lot of screaming, I think. Which I guess is how you mimic my style acoustically, by just screaming at each other. I went to the Indiana Museum of Art this past weekend, and I forget the artist's name, but I went, it was in the postmodern, you know, modern art section. And I walk by this one room, it's like really dimly lit, and there's just this one giant gray painting against the wall, and we'll see a giant television set just playing, I don't know, just showing a, rug, a gray rug on it. And this, as I'm walking by, I look in, and then this woman, one of the security guards, just says me, you can touch it if you want. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so I walked in there, and I started walking up to it, and all of a sudden, the room started to morph around me. Like, it was like I was suddenly like looking at it through a fisheye lens. It was like freaking me to fuck out. I'm getting closer to it. She's like, you can touch it. like, go ahead, touch it. I'm like, I'm going to go touch it. It's like, I'm trying. I'm, I'm getting closer. And I'm go- I got closer and closer. It was like, my, my, my fucking hand turns gray. I don't know what the fuck is going on. I think it's like coming out and like surrounding my hand. And I don't understand it. And uh, so then I keep going. She keeps saying, I like, just touch it. I'm like, I'm, I'm fucking, t- I'm trying to. But I think it's touching me. And then I go and. I reached my arm further and further, and I suddenly realized it's just a hole in the wall. And uh, I guess that's postmodernism. Uh, submit your guest suggestions, send us money, subscribe, submit your Poe stories. Just reach out and contact me if you want to do that. Let me know what you want to do. It's on the blog. There's a bunch of stories already claimed, but there's still a bunch more you could claim. All right. Talk to you guys on Thursday. Bye-bye.